one of the most uh, famous illustrations uh, that's kind of been consistent about money throughout the uh, recent history was one by Charles Spurgeon, who um, uh, was called the carrot uh, illustration and the horse. And um, the story goes that he told in a sermon was that uh, there was a king, and in the Lord's court, there was a... Um, uh, a farmer brought a carrot, a very, very, very large carrot, the, the biggest carrot he'd ever grown in the, with great, great prizes. I don't know how big a carrot can get or what, but that's the story goes. And uh, he gave it to the king. It was the greatest thing he'd ever had. And he gave it to the king. And a lord was there and watching that and saw, and saw him give it. And uh, the king, in response to the, to the, uh, the uh, farmer giving his carrot, gave him a huge estate and blessed him with a great big estate. And um, so the Lord who was watching thought, hmm, and he went and got the finest horse within his stables and brought it to the king. And he gave that fine horse to the king, and the Lord did, and the king said, thank you. And he said, well, wait a minute. What's wrong? What, why didn't I get some huge blessing uh, like the farmer? And he said, uh, the king said, you gave, uh, the farmer gave to the king, and you gave to yourself. And um, I don't know how you feel about talking about money. I asked the studies this week, our Proverbs, as we continue in our Proverbs, we asked the question, I'm not sure how you feel about money, what money's like for you, what are the feelings it provokes in you to think about it. That's an interesting thought. And uh, I'm not sure what it feels like, even your history for your church, to talk about money and possessions and in that way. Um, uh, for me, if I'm honest, it brings uh, un uh, uncomfortableness and um, and a, a little unusual. I have a lot of weird thoughts about it and some of the things I grew up seeing around money, some of my own accord. Uh, but it, um, 16 of Jesus' 30-something pro uh, parables had to do with money and possessions. There's over 2,500 verses in the Bible around money and possessions, more than any other topic, more than heaven and hell, uh, even though it's divided up in that. So, um, and interesting enough, uh, Jesus, I don't think, ever asked for money. I know he asked for the coin. Uh, let me have a coin to talk about, give to Caesar to Caesar. Uh, because he was interested in something more than your money. And that's what we established like last week, is that he is after our hearts. When we think about that, right, does he need our money? He owns it. It's his. No. So what is Jesus after? Uh, and um, what we looked at last week in the contentment is that Jesus is really after uh, our hearts and how we relate to it. So, um, so why should we uh, kind of regularly be talking about it uh, within the church? I hope you notice that sometimes in our tithes and offerings, we're starting to talk more about it because... Uh, um, uh, as we, right before we give our tithes and offers, our deacons are reminded us of giving him money because money is a central part in our possessions of our life. And the Bible said it's a huge deal and it addresses it. And Jesus was talking about it all the time. So it ought to be normal for God's people to be talking about our money and our possessions. I pray that that would begin to change for you and for us. Um, imagine that you were to go to a doctor and, um, and you went to the doctor and you said, listen, I'm having... Um, I'm having uh, chest pains, and I'm really tired all the time. And uh, your doctor said, okay, well, I want to ask you, uh, can I start, I need to ask you some questions about your life and what you're doing, you're eating, and you say, uh-uh, no, 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 I just want the medicine to fix me. But you can't talk, you can't ask me any questions about my life, what I eat, where I've been, where I've traveled, the stress I'm under, right? And the doctor said, well, the doctor would say to you, I, I can't handle that. Well, I can't really help you then. I need to know everything about you so I can know how to help, why you have heart 
praying in tiredness. Uh, that's kind of the way we think about the Lord. We want to like, just give me a pill for my salvation, but I, want you to, I don't want you to know um, everything about me. What is it about? We, we kind of say, I don't want, don't touch all the areas of my life, but actually, in order for you and I to flourish, every area of our life has to be really under the rule. Is, and that's what salvation is, is to trust. It must be under the rule of the king, a kind king. And I want to remind you this morning as we talk about finances that what we've established about the Proverbs is one of the purposes of the Proverbs is he want, God wants to help his people flourish in his creation. And so one of the things in order to help you with creation is, and help us flourish is that he talks about money, and particularly our topics this morning, is he warns us against greed, and he moves us towards the idea of generosity and addressing our money. If you want to flourish, let me ask you this. Do you believe God wants you to flourish? That's a hard one to believe. But if he does, then he would address something that's central to our lives so that we might flourish. And that is his heart. And so I want you to know as a pastor, I want you to flourish, and we want to flourish. And so if that's the case, then we need to always be hearing God about our money and our possessions. And that's what the Proverbs is helping us do. In everyday life, how do you handle and deal with that? So um, let me just say it this way. There can be no significant flourishing in your life until your money and what you feel about your money is in God's hands. Let me say it again. There can be no significant flourishing in your life until your money and what you feel about your money is in God's hands. Right? What you, how, you, how you relate to it and how you feel about it and your money until it's in God's hands. You won't flourish. And um, uh, I think the scriptures are clear about that. So um, we'll be looking this morning at, at greed and generosity, and that's been the topic. Last week we looked at contentment, which dealt with more of how we feel about it. But now today, is it, how, what does God want us to do with our money? How does he want us to relate to it? And, um, and still kind of going after our hearts as well. So before, one other thing I want to say to kind of set the table, because I want you to hear from the passages we look at that God wants you to flourish. But if you're like me, one of the things that kind of comes to your mind, you, I don't want you to be distracted about some, a couple of questions because money and broad topic is really hard to, we can't cover all of it today. But there's one that kind of comes to the mind, and I think people wrestle with how much? What is God wanting? How much should I give? And what is the tithe? And what do all those things mean? So let me just tell you where, where we're coming from, where I'm coming from biblically, what we think about the tithe and the perspective as we look at this idea of first fruits this morning and greed, okay? But let me just, just tell you a couple of things. First, the tithe in the sense, biblical sense, is, the word, uh, uh, is a word in the Hebrew that means tenth, one-tenth. And it was instituted, we see in the Old Testament, we won't go through the whole history of that. And there was also a first fruit sacrifice. And the, actually our passage from Proverbs is ceremonial in its nature, the nature of it. There was actually a first fruit sacrifice or ceremony that was happened throughout uh, God's people. And actually the tithe, there would be times that they would bring to the storehouse a tenth of their incomes. They would do that regularly throughout the year, different times it was asked for. But here's an interesting verse in Matthew 23, 23. Uh, where, look, this is where Jesus was speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for, your tithe, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithful. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So, what I want you to see here is that we get to the New Testament. Many people think the tithe is just for the Old Testament, and it's obsolete when you get to the New, and God honors the heart of a cheerful giver. And, 
There's all kinds of things to think about that. What I want to give you, what I think is the biblical, we think the biblical perspective around that is as we wrestle with it. There's room, even within our own denomination, to think about this. But I want to give you one, a, a way to think about it. And uh, what, what I believe to be true. Uh, you'll see here in this verse, as Jesus, is the tithe, although it's not mentioned, he's directly referring to the Pharisees who were tithing. And they were so trying to make sure that they gave 10% that they were using the spices from their gardens. They were making sure that that produce which they didn't own land. Priests didn't own lands. Pharisees didn't at that point. And so they're trying to make sure that they give a tenth. So it was still instituted. And notice what Jesus says about the, the tithe. He says, it's fine for you to keep doing that. He doesn't tell them to stop thinking of the tenth. But what he tells them is that he says, you have lost sight of the weightier things. Meaning that there, is, there, are, there are more things to be looking towards, to be providing for and helping with justice and mercy, if you look at the context there. So in summary, just quickly here, to say what it seems like, what we believe about the, um, about the tithe is that it is, in, in essence, this 10%, as it moved into the New Testament, is kind of the starting place. It never was abolished. It's kind of the starting face for generosity. But it moves beyond that, uh, and that, that it's just a marker, but not the end or the absolute of what we should give. And as a matter of fact, so you say, well, what if I'm not giving a tenth? Well, I would encourage you to be moving towards that. Start with five, but the tenth ought to be the goal of starting with God and to bring to his uh, to, his, uh, to his church and in generosity of that and to look beyond that. We see that. Now, you think about it, how wise that is. Because what if, what if you were told this is the only amount you give and the rest you keep? We know what our, God knows what our hearts are like. We would just not live generously and it would just become, I give my 10% and everything else is mine. And that's not what God wants us to do. He actually is after our hearts. He wants us to hold loosely to what he has. And so in a sense, he gives us a starting point. And so I would even go to say, if um, I would exhort you, if the 10% of giving is hard for you or you don't want to do that, then you need to evaluate where you are with the Lord. So, <coughs> excuse me, uh, my throat... Uh, has, has gotten dry. But it's the beginning and it's the starting place. Now you may say, well, would I give the first 10% to the local church and that I give beyond that as during giving? That's another question that comes up. I want to put you at rest so we can get to the passage. And here's the thing. I don't think that the, uh, in the Old Testament the tenth was taken to the storehouse. But they had a place where they brought all their uh, possessions and their crops and everything they brought to give the tenth, and it was a storehouse, and they dispersed it uh, from there. And actually the tithe was given to the priest who had no land for their provision. It was given to the poor. And there was one place where everything was given. That was kind of what the 10% was done for. <laughs> People wonder, is the local church now the storehouse, the local storehouse where you're supposed to bring your 10% first here and give beyond that? I don't think that's the case. I've talked to Old Testament scholars, some of the greatest that are living today. I've actually asked them that question. They don't think there's a direct correlation between the storehouse and all the way to the... Um, to the local church, that the 10% goes there. But what most would say, because it seems in the New Testament, is there's a general principle, but most of the people I read say this, that the lion's share of your giving ought to come to the local storehouse, to the church, meaning that the church, the local church, ought to be in purview of your giving and make sure that the local church is taken care of. But it's not the only place to be giving. And so that's kind of the idea, all right? So there's a framework. The tenth is a starting place, but the God is after your heart. It's generous. Should think probably mostly about the lion's share of the local church, but that the heart is to be giving and to look out and to move that way. Does that make sense?
Let's pray now as God brings us to generosity and, um, and greediness. God, help us to hear what you want from our heart when it comes to our finances. Would you speak to our mind and our hearts and our hands? Even as, as you prepare us to come to this generous table that you were so generous to us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So if you think about God wanting you to flourish in these passages we looked at this morning, then I want to, just the outline is to think about Xander. This is my son. Xander, thank you, brother, <laughs> son. <laughs> oh, I told you I get nervous talking about money. That must be what it is, right? No, not really. Okay. Just hear that God wants you to flourish. He warns against greediness. Right? And um, we'll look at that to begin with. There was a couple of passages we had in our studies this week, but I just wanted to highlight from Proverbs 28. Look at verse 20 and 22. A faithful man will abound with blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich and will not go unpunished. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon it. But I, I just want to zoom in on the word hasten or hurry with some of the translations of that. That a greedy person has a hurriedness or a hastening after riches. There's something about them that is moving towards them fastly. Now, we think these Proverbs is maybe talking about get-rich schemes as well, where you may be you know, trying to gambling or that you would bypass diligent work and the normal means that God is bringing wealth to people. But nevertheless, that word hasten, and so when you are hastening after finances and money, hurrying after it, meaning a preoccupation to it, then you and I are off in that. And there's a warning from the Proverbs. Don't hasten. Don't be hurrying in your heart. Don't have an unsettledness to go always after riches. All right? You see that. Now, I just want to share with you um, around the particular greediness and greed, what the Bible says to that. And I'm just going to borrow from a book that I've read, most of it, and it's a great resource. It's by uh, Ray Ortland's uh, or Dane. I don't remember which one it is. Dane Ortland's. I wrote a book on Proverbs, and I've been looking at it a lot. And he, he talked about money when he was addressing money. He says that the Proverbs warn us of kind of four kind of dark powers that can come up in our hearts uh, when we go after, uh, that are greedy, that these kind of these dark powers of, that come out of our hearts uh, and we wrongly relate uh, to um, to money, and we'll give those to you real fast, and we'll walk through them real, real quickly here. Uh, the first one is in Proverbs eleven twenty six that people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So that's Proverbs eleven twenty six, and this one, this one is about control. That oftentimes a dark power, when we hasten after, after greed, is that the thing we're wanting to have is control. Now, where do you get that from this particular passage? Well, someone selfishly is hoarding grain to drive up the price. That's kind of the idea here in the marketplace. That they hold the grain back in order to get control of the prices. So grain was no luxury in the ancient world. It was a basic need to their diet. So holding back grain was a way to manipulate people at their point of real and daily need. So one commentator uh, articulates one of the central insights of the book of Proverbs around finances and greed, saying this, that the righteous people are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, but the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. So you see the control. Some, what greed makes us do is want to get control of things, and uh, that's the idea. That's a dark, um, a dark 
a darkness of our hearts. Secondly, uh, a greedy man, Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Notice that a greedy man stirs up strife. And so this one is about conflict. The first one was control. They're all C's. The second one is conflict. And so uh, the, tra- the phrase there translated greedy is literally wide of appetite is what that word means uh, in the Hebrew. So it's a wide appetite. So there's, um, and notice it stirs up strife, that there is an inner drivenness that overlooks boundaries and warning signs and limits when someone is greedy, that they don't see any boundaries. They just want to keep going after things. And so a greedy person um, is unsatisfied with all they have, so he foolishly overreaches and triggers conflicts with other, uh, others. And so you remember the James passage? You have, why do you have quarreling among you? Because you covenant and do not have. And so the quarreling is created, the conflict is created by our strong desires and the overreach. So one of the dark things of greediness is not only control that we go after, if it comes from our heart, but then we also want to we create um, uh, conflict around us. And would you say there's conflict around finances in the world? Would you say there's conflict in families and marriages around finances? It's oftentimes it can stir up dark things. The third one here, just in greediness, is unequal weights. I'm sorry, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Notice that. So they create confusion. And notice the uh, deceptive wages there. It uh, can also be translated wages that are a lie. So selfishness tells us, get what you want. And so people will lie in order to get what they want. They believe that lie, and they actually will lie in order to get what they want. And so how are you in any way misrepresenting things in your life? Agreed will, agreed will make you disrep- misrepresent things and lie in order to have gain financially. That's a warning. That's a darkness of the heart. So control, conflict. And confusion. And then lastly, uh, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Do you feel from these Proverbs the warning of God against greediness and what it can do to you? And so notice here the unequal weight. The last one here of the dark power of our heart is it's about corruption, that it can bring, greediness brings corruption to places, all kinds of places. It doesn't take long for you to read about greed. Just open up old Google and start looking around and seeing where greed is bringing corruption all over the world. But notice here it's about unequal weights or any kind of dishonesty, which they would weigh in the marketplace and they would balance and sell things you know, rip you off by they, the way they would make a balance of scales as you bought things for them. And so it's a kind of cheating or cutting corners or false advertising. And that is an abomination to the Lord. Um, notice that. The word abomination is used there. It's strong language. So have you ever thought, so the idea of corrupt business, bearing false witness in your business, cheating, cutting corners around money, and the scales is an abomination. A word that in the Bible is associated with things like perverse sexuality and the oppression of the poor and injustices. The word abomination means high, high hatred of God towards something. And so his, he hates greediness. <laughs> and so the Proverbs are doing a wonderful thing to warn us away. He, if God wants you to flourish, then he says... Know what greed does. It makes you want to control. 
Greed makes you create confusion. It creates conflict, and it also brings corruption. So he's asked, he's God's people, if you want to thrive in this world, stay away from that. All right, so then we move towards what is he calling us to. And, um, and so you, uh, we get to our Proverbs 3 passage, a famous passage. And so, so if he's warning us to stay away from that, to flourish, then here's what he's wanting for us. Here's some of the how. This is a specific application of some of the how, how you and I can flourish in God's um, in God's world. And notice it says, Honor the Lord with our wealth and with all first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So let's just work through that, just a little bit of the phrases. First, notice that, that the honor of the Lord, generosity, giving, it begins with honoring the Lord. Do you see that? Now remember, I told you that this particular verse in the Bible is one, most of the Proverbs, if not all, I can't remember reading, but I'll, I'll just go with most here. Rarely the Proverbs ever bring up anything from the ceremonial law. It's just everyday living. But this language in this particular passage evokes, would evoke the readers to think about the first fruits, sacrifice, or ceremony they would have known of in the Old Testament or among the temple. And so even the idea, it was, a weight, it was, weight, uh, it was grains and produce or what they bring to the temple. So this is the idea of a temple idea. It's worship, it's ceremonial. And it says, honor the Lord uh, with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. So the whole idea of honoring the Lord is the premise for all of our giving. And so Jesus is after your heart. Remember we said he doesn't need your money. In this particular word, honor, the somewhat unusual verb that uh, most of the commentators say is a dual sense of becoming heavier negatively and positively in honor in God. It has, it's the same word that somehow is in the root of Yahweh and glory, which means heaviness. So when it says honor the Lord, it means there's a negative heaviness, there's a weightiness to I see God for who he is, and he is all glorious. It's a mixture of that. There's weight to this. It is out of this weightiness and seeing God for who he is that I actually bring my wealth. So it's a strong word for us to understand. And I do think there's two things kind of in view here of this word honor that we kind of get from the Proverbs. And the first one is this, is that when he was thinking about that, uh, the two things understood about worshiping our Lord would have been creator, right? You, you remember sometimes when the Proverbs will say, and remember your maker, and the phrase maker was used there. The idea of creation being a thought, what, what does it mean to honor God? Well, it means to think of him as creator, as a Jew, that he was the one who made them and created them in the Genesis story. They had the Pentateuch. And what were the implications of that? What does that mean if I worship and honor God as creator? That means that all that is, exists is his and was made by him. Here's the other implication of that, is that it's not ours in the Genesis story that all of creation was given to us as managers or stewards. We're viceroys in the old English language that we just represent. We were put in charge to manage something that's not ours, which is all of his creation. So when the, when the, when the, when the Proverbs are speaking to our finances and it says honor him, the posture is, the first thought is that the idea is that it's not yours. So let me just say that this morning to all of us. Our money is not ours. Let me say that again. Your money is not yours. My money is not mine. It is God's. If we were just to believe that, we function with our finances and our possessions as if they are ours. High schoolers, middle schoolers, every dollar that you make and you think you earn, which I'm thankful you're learning and working, it's not yours. It's the Lord's. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that in him, all things he himself might have supremacy. 
He is holding and ruling. And I don't know if you guys had the opportunity to look at the First Chronicles passage, but when David, in First Chronicles 29 this week in our devotions, when David, it was the temple story, when they were building the temple and finishing the temple for Solomon to complete, but they brought the resources in order for Solomon to do it. It was a day of worship at the end of David's reign. And it's one of the most glorious services that I actually had to confess that I don't know if I've ever worshipped God while I was bringing lots of things to give to him. But David gives his, all of his resources, all the people are laying down gold. I mean, it's an unfathomable amount of money that they're giving to be God, bring God's temple to the storehouse. And there's one part in there, I don't know if you noticed it this week, which is the idea of creation. It's funny. Look at it verse, in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, 16. But who am I? What is my people, David said, that we should be able to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and you, are own, you own uh, and of your own have be, we given you. O oh, oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building a, you a house, your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. Like he was like, isn't this so ironic, God, that we're giving it to you and we're praising you when really you gave it to us and it's yours. I don't know how to say anything about that other than that's where they were worshiping. So when we bring things, we're not bringing it to him. What does that tell you? God is after your heart. They were flourishing in verse 29. That day was a glorious day. I would love to go back and see what that was like. When people were finally detached for that moment from everything they owned and realized it was from God, and they were worshiping him. Just laying their finances and their monies at his feet. The other thing in view there is um, not only he's creator for the honor, but is his steadfast love of God. He's the deliverer, and that's Yahweh. Notice it's the capital Lord. It was the, the Yahweh God who delivered them from that. So not only is he creator and owner of all things, but then we remember that he is the one, despite who we are, who faithfully keeps providing for us and gives us manna and gives us water in the desert and delivers us when we were in captivity in Egypt. And the only reason we're in captivity is because we denied him. And yet he still comes after us. So how do you honor the Lord? What, is, what does it mean to honor the Lord? That's the most important phrase here from your heart is to see him as the owner and the creator and ruler of all things and he gives to you, but then to also see how faithful he is in his steadfast love. And for us, we have the greater Egypt. We have the greater Moses. We have Christ who has delivered us. And that's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians. When he was talking to the Corinthians and he was raising money for the famine in Jerusalem and he told the Corinthians about the Macedonians who were poor and in poverty and they gave. And what did he say about them? He said, 2 Corinthians 8, Five. He says this, we not, not we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so that's in sight. You will never honor the Lord with your finances until you think of him as the creator and owner of all things and you also see how he became poor so that you and I might become rich. There's the heart of it. And it is our job to keep going back there over and over. I hope that we are somehow a church holding up to you the great Yahweh who has come and that would win our hearts to honor him with our finances. So then as we move to the end here, notice it says, with your wealth and with the honor of the Lord, with what? With your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. The word wealth there, it literally, the word there uh, in the Hebrew really does refer to personal possessions. Okay? 
So it's not just like, hey, if I'm wealthy, therefore he's talking about it. Just meaning the word would have been translated. You're in, this is talking, this is Proverbs to the, God's people. Your personal possessions, your wealth, honor the Lord with it. And then notice the second part, first fruits of all your produce. And so you want to know what that means, first fruits? It's a phrase that's really, oh, I, used to, I knew how many times it's said in the Bible. It's a lot. I could go with that. I can't be fact-checked on that one. Um, but it's referring back to Leviticus 23, 19, the best of the first crops. And so whenever they made sacrifices in the Old Testament, they always, whatever your level of status and financially, you were to give the best you could give within that level. And they had different sacrifices that matched kind of where we were. As a matter of fact, our Savior came and gave only two doves when he came to the temple because they were poor with his family. Here's the point. Honor the Lord with your first fruits. It means the first of all your produce. Whatever comes in first, you give it, you take it off the top, and you give it to him. So you may think, well, what does that mean about, I can't answer all these questions, what about government, taxes, before? I'll just tell you, the Bible says before. Any income you bring in, it says to take the first fruits of that. And I would tell you that, that I think that that's talking about the 10% within view, just a starting place. The, the merging of the first fruits and the tenth in the, new, in the New Testament is just a starting place to just when the first crops come in. That's what they did in the first fruits. They had a harvest, and they gave the first 10% of the harvest, or the first fruits of it, they gave a blessing. And why the first fruits? Why, is it, why does he want it right at the beginning? Why not at the end of the month? Let me kind of shake it out and see where I am, and I'll give you what's left over. That's part of the reason he's guarding against but it's the first. May I remind you that God wants you to flourish. He's not withholding from you. So if he wants you to flourish, this is how he says to go about it. You'll flourish when you begin to think first fruits. Bring your first fruits to it. And... Um, Notice in our verse 10 that, of course, you'll flourish. He's saying your vats will be full. We'll get to that in just a second. We'll wrap up with that. But your vats will be, he wants you to flourish. And the way you flourish is by bringing the first fruit. So, you're, so what are you saying? You mean the first, whatever I have income at that moment? Yes. Take it out of the beginning. We go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't know if I have enough for the rest. That's the point. Because the first fruits says a lot. The first fruits is about are thriving. There's all kinds of things. What is it? What is it? Why, why the first fruits? First fruits, well, if you begin to do the first fruits, here's one thing it'll do. It'll begin to, it makes you say, what is my life ordered around and my finances? Him. I take off the first. You ever heard the stories of some theologians in the past? They took a stack of dimes uh, uh, in America and they would take dimes of a dollar and say, which one I give the top one? You take it away uh, and give it. That, that's, that's the point. Something about doing it first Makes it order, it's, there's, makes it say, this is what's most important in my life. There's an ordering of our hearts. There's also a humility to it. When we take the first fruits, it remembers it's not mine, it's yours. And I didn't remember. I mean, David said all this wealth when they were worshiping, we didn't, it wasn't ours, you provided it for us. Anything I have, you gave it to me. It's, it's putting you in that posture of that. Any growth that's happened from you, no matter how hard I've worked, no matter how diligent, which you say you prosper the diligent, in the end, Lord, it comes from you. That's what it's saying. When 
to the first fruits, first fruits. And one of the other things it does is it begins to set you free. It begins to set you free in that moment when first fruits, if, if it begins to say, Lord, I'm trusting you and not in my work. That's real freedom. That's what it means to flourish is depend upon the Lord and not that. Now, I know in your mind, you're wanting to go back to how much and how little in the beginning. I don't know. Somewhere around the 10th, it starts. But here's the other thing. It says you ought to do it on the front end. And that will help you flourish. Not wait. The other thing is I do think it makes you, it feels, some, I love what the discussion we had in the studies this week. And we, 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 we were honest with each other and said it feels so vulnerable. But what about rent? And what about grocery? And what about the month outlasting my my, my budget. And there's a sense of vulnerability around that. Now, I am talking in general. I do realize people can be in a crisis and in places where something's for a moment in time. But in general, the Proverbs are talking about a path, remember? In general, the idea of giving your first fruits, I think, creates a vulnerability. And we don't like being vulnerable but it creates a vulnerability that you and I were designed for. That was the creation story. That we, um, remember, we were in a garden where evil was present and God was present, and we were vulnerable to that. But it's in that vulnerability that we were dependent upon the Lord. We were naked and unashamed in the garden story. And that's what he's after. So, um, and then also, you can see when the first fruits are given, what it begins to do is it, it begins to let, make you let go of your heart. And um, it's easier to be generous if that's where you start. And uh, it sets us free. So last thing in the verse 10 there, you'll notice that it says that the barns will be filled and the vats will be bursting. And, and so we get back to that open illustration about the, uh, about the, uh, the carrot and the horse. It seems like that if you give in this way in the first fruits, that you'll be rich and be a millionaire. Remember the Proverbs are hyperbole at some level, and it's trying to give us a principle and a path. It doesn't mean that you'll prosper necessarily and become a millionaire. But it does mean this. It does mean this. This passage is saying every Christian who is generous is not going to be a millionaire. It is saying that God will always reward with plenty those who make, them, make him a priority. That is true. I don't know exactly what the plenty is going to look like. Sometimes it may be financial, monetary wealth. Sometimes it may be other things, more intangible. But the real, at the same time, it's a promise that when you make God a priority, you will never, ever regret it. That's what it means. And sometimes the prospering is financially bigger. and that, But it, I, I don't want to say it's not because sometimes it really is. And this is where the prosperity people have warped this and gotten people under their power and doing it. That, that's not it. I hope you hear this is flowing from the honoring of the Lord. And uh, God will do it. Let me give you a definition of, uh, I came across, of, um, of generosity. Um, Lord, um, I don't know, I'm not praying, sorry. What is generosity? This is, uh, this is from a PCA church. I love this definition within our denomination. Generosity is the natural, consistent, and occasionally spontaneous giving of our material possessions to God's service and to our communities because of the model, because, because of and modeled after what Jesus has done for us on the cross. As God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, so our posture towards God and others in response to his love should be one of cheerful sacrifice and generosity. 
It's a natural, it's consistent, and it's occasionally spontaneous giving because of who he is, of how generous he was to us. Let me pray as we come to the table. God, would you, um, as we come now to communion and to worship you, um, would you let us um, worship in a way and commune in a way that we believe and see how generous you are? And would you make us want to be generous with others and in your world? And uh, would this meal really say to us what it says to others, that you really want us to flourish. So as we think about our finances and giving and general greediness and generosity, God, may, we, may this meal invite us to believe that you, um, you are generous, you want us to live generously, and you're after our hearts. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.